Hi, this is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. I'm sure you've all, you all saw the story recently uh, where the lawsuit filed by the last three known survivors of the Tulsa race massacre was dismissed. It was hard to, hard to process uh, how a case of that import, a case that we've talked about ad infinitum, ad nauseum, um, with these three survivors, I think all three basically 100 or 100 uh, years of age or more, but just three people left from uh, those horrific Tulsa race uh, riots, the, the race massacre. Um, this case, again, dismissed by a judge in Oklahoma. It was, for me at least, not sure about you, a stark reminder of the ongoing struggle for justice and reparations faced by uh, marginalized communities like ours. Uh, the black community, of course, is still grappling with uh, this reparations fight. We will see what happens here in California uh, and how the nation uh, proceeds after we see what happens here in California. Um, and so in this hour, we're having a conversation that weaves together personal narratives and collective histories. I think a conversation, I hope a conversation, that will shed light then on the enduring legacies of racial injustice in this country. Uh, please be joined by journalist and author Donna Bryson, whose personal journey and reflections intersect with the broader narrative of racial injustice. Let me tell you a bit about Donna and why I wanted to have her on. Uh, in a recent Reuters feature story written by Donna, she explored her family's history in rural Georgia, unearthing the painful realities of America's racist past. Through her personal exploration, she not only confronted her own ancestral connections, but also contemplated how our nation can learn from its history rather than shy away from it. We'll spend most of our hour talking then about this uh, powerful piece that Donna authored for Reuters. Um, uh, she also works at Reuters, and she was the co-author of this piece you might have seen, everybody, I must have got this thing, it's being, it's being passed around like candy. Um, I got this thing from 20 different people. Uh, people kept texting it to me. So you probably saw the story uh, that she co-authored that shows that many of America's political elite, including presidents, Supreme Court justices, governors, and legislators, descend from ancestors uh, who enslaved people. Uh, the chart, the graph, the photos of who these persons are was arresting uh, by itself. Uh, so Donna is also the co-author of that piece. So a lot to talk about in this hour. Uh, glad I got a whole hour for Donna Bryson, who I welcome to the airways of KBLA Talk for Canadian right now. Donna, good to have you on. How are you today? I'm well, and thank you so much for inviting me. Glad to have you on. Sorry for that long introduction, but you've uh, <laughs> you've been doing a lot lately, and I wanted to kind of get it all out and let folk know who who you were and why I wanted to have you on. Uh, we'll get to uh, that again provocative piece about uh, uh, these elite uh, who are the descendants of enslavers. Fascinating story. We'll unpack that. I promise. But I want to start with uh, the story that you wrote uh, for Reuters about about your own family. And the title of that story is, uh, All We Are Is Memory. All We Are Is Memory. I don't want to color the first question too much, pardon the pun, but I want to just give you a chance to sort of set the stage, to set the table um, for why you wrote this article, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump from there. All right. Well, it started this whole process as part of the bigger project, the story you mentioned that everyone has been texting you. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> um, and that was an article looking at personal ties to slavery. And as part of that whole project, I was asked to write about how we teach about slavery and other hard history 
And it just seemed uh, to make sense to talk about personal ties, too, since that was kind of the, the overarching theme of, uh, of our project. And I thought back to stories I had heard growing up, you know, when I, my father would talk about uh, his family and also some of the racist violence our family has faced. When I, and I would overhear this, as I thought, I think a lot of people probably share that experience of listening in on adults mm-hmm. talking about these hard histories. And um, I decided to try to put some of the, the uh, research experience I had learned while researching the histories of some of the notables to my own family and found it quite revealing. Mm. Um, how much of this story about your own family that you found quite revealing when you got into it did you know prior to commencing the research? Oh, I knew it. It's something, as I said, listening to my father and mm. the elders discuss as I was a child, I... I told him at one point while I was working with the story, because he would raise these topics with, with other African-American families. And I just, I drew the conclusion that every African-American family had these kinds of stories, that it was the norm. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. yeah. All right. So when we come forward, um, we'll commence our conversation uh, with Donna. Uh, about what she actually found out. Uh, as you heard her say a moment ago, she knew some of this uh, based on what her father was uh, sharing with her when she was a kid, just kind of eavesdropping. Uh, but now she's a, she's a grown woman, um, and she is uh, getting involved in uh, her own research to learn more about her personal narrative. Uh, and we'll hear about that personal narrative when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. <laughs> At Lowe's, we're always bringing pros more ways to save. Right now, save $50 when you buy the Tank 6-Gallon Pancake Air Compressor from Metabo HPT for just $1.99. Plus, get up to 20% off select James Hardy siding. Shop in-store or online for more deals you can't beat. Because Lowe's knows savings. Lowe's knows pros. Metabo HPT offer valid 7-6 through 7-26. James Hardy offer valid 7-13 through 7-19. Selection varies by location while supplies last. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Kind of like choosing Derek Jeter as the pinch hitter for your baseball team. Jeter, you're in. We need a home run. I'll give it a try. I've swung a bat once or twice. That's out of here. Yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Girl, I have a secret. When I get stressed out, I get sweaty. That's why I use Secret Clinical Antiperspirant. It's like my own secret weapon. For 72 hours, I get Secret's strongest protection against sweat caused by stress, heat, and activity. Because you know how crazy life can get. Plus, it's made with advanced odor fighters that don't just cover up smelliness. They help prevent it from happening in the first place. Believe me, if I weren't wearing Secret, I'd be a hot, smelly mess. Thankfully, Secret works. Are you working way too hard for way too little? There's never been a better time to consider a career in IT. You could enjoy a recession-resistant career in a rewarding field with plenty of growth opportunities and often flexible work environments. Go to mycomputercareer.edu and take the free career evaluation. You can start your new career in months, not years. Take classes online or on campus, and financial aid is available to qualified students, including the GI Bill. Now's the time. Go to mycomputercareer.edu. 
www.thecomputercareer.edu. Hey, it is B. D.L. Hugo, and I am thrilled to be heard weekdays in my hometown on KBLA Talk 1580. So check out the D.L. Hugo Afternoon Show weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. We got a whole lot to talk about. Let me tell you. That's for the real. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to uh, Tavis Smiley and Donna Bryson on KBLA Talk 1580. She has authored a powerful piece for Reuters called All We Are Is Memory. Um, she just uh, answered my question as to how and why she got into writing this story. And now I'm going to uh, ask Donna to sort of unpack what she learned when she got into research. I said we got some time. So, uh, Donna, uh, tell me what you uh, what you figured out. I, I like the way you put that before the break about eavesdropping. I think that's what way a lot of us, a lot of, a lot of the younger people learn about their history, eavesdropping on mm-hmm. the elders. And a lot of journalists <laughs> guess, grow, grow up to continue to be eavesdroppers. <laughs> but, but, to, but, but you do have to do a little bit more of, um, I guess, trying to document if you're going to, to move from family history and oral history to... To writing a story. Mm-hmm. And I said about it in much the same way we said about, as I said earlier, uh, researching the genealogies of notable Americans, looking for uh, census reports, looking for newspaper articles, looking for um, memoir. And, and there were some gaps. You won't be surprised to hear, I'm sure. Um, If we we can go back to every census until we get to the census, the census of 1860 and 1850, which are accompanied by slave schedules, and those schedules have no name. They have um, age ranges sometimes, sometimes specific ages of of uh, African Americans who were enslaved, um, race, uh, I guess we'd say color, um, whether they were male or female, and an idea of their age, and that was it. It can feel like a uh, a wall you reach if you're an African American researching family. The um, I, I think like a lot of people during the pandemic sent off a saliva test to one of these genealogy companies, and, and I got back a family tree that had names. Some names I had heard from my father, of course, but mm-hmm. uh, it only went back as far as 1834, the year my father's great grandfather was born, presumably in slavery. But even that, I was not able to document beyond that, just the presumption given the year of his birth. The, um, and so there was that document. There were documents about my grandfather who had served in World War II, able to find his name on the uh, chip registry of returning troops, which was delightful for me to see. Uh, it had a explained that he was in the quartermaster's corps and I had seen his gravestone. He has a a gravestone like you would see at any military cemetery, though this is in a small cemetery in a small town in Florida. And it's been weathered with age and I was never able to make out those three initials after his name. And now I know it's quartermaster's corps, Q and C. So those are, those are things I was able to you know, put my hands on and to document, but there were other things I was not able to document. My father's grandfather was lynched. She was tarred and feathered. Of the stories that my father heard, uh, uh, he never met his grandfather. He was he was told that his grandfather was 
was lynched before he was born. The death certificate I was able to find puts it maybe a, a year after my father was born, but my father was a baby, so we well, assume he didn't necessarily know all those details. Uh, my, this would have been his grandfather, so my great-grandfather, who was a craftsman, a brick, brick mason. He was a mechanic. My father was told that he had a, uh, a little garage near the house in Commerce, Georgia, and he was a merchant. He had a, a store. His name was General Bryson, and he had a store that was called General Store. As my dad says, that it was a general store. It sold all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd, be, uh, you'd be a lot better off if, if, if it were the general store that we know today. Yeah. Yeah, but I digress. Go ahead. Exactly. And even that, was, it was hard to find in census records since his records didn't refer to him as being a shopkeeper. But uh, did find a, a map of Commerce, Georgia from that period that shows the house and building that that seems to be labeled uh, a shop. There's there's that too that they they can put your hands on. Um, My father was told that um, it was possible that general success as a merchant was uh, upsetting to white supremacists in town and that he was pulled from the store and tarred and feathered and died as a result. Of that attack. There, there, there are couple, the, um, I'm sorry, go ahead and finish your point. Finish that point, and I want to ask you something. Go ahead. I was just saying, but the uh, the death certificate I was able to find does not refer to those kinds of injuries. It says he died of heart failure. Uh, you know, I looked at that with my dad, and my dad kind of scoffed at that. It's not true. Yeah. Um, you said a few things now that I want to sort of un- un- unpack and uh, give you a chance to unpack in this conversation. Um, uh, We'll talk about the lynching here in just a second. Um, it is, it is for many of us, you know, common knowledge um, that there were lynchings that happened every day in this country. Um, so nothing new about that. It's quite another thing to discover that your grandfather, uh, that your father's grandfather, was lynched. That's that's a big deal. Uh, and I, I want to ask Don a couple questions about this lynching in, in just a second here. But before I do that, I want to go further back into her story uh, about. Um, uh, the delight that she said she felt when she discovered that one of her ancestors was uh, one of the troops. Uh, tell me more about that, Don. Don, I'm specifically interested about your use of the word delighted. What made you so delighted when you learned about your ancestor being one of the one of the troops? Well, it was documents that connected stories my father had told. My father talked a lot about his his father having served in World War One and having served in Europe, and stories about him coming back. And uh, he learned French while he was um, in Europe. And my grandmother learned French from school. And my dad would say that the two of them would speak French when they didn't want my dad and his brother to know what they were talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Connecting a family story to to looking at these documents. You know, he was one of many people on that ship coming back from France. And here was... A kind of a document that underlined a family story, a historical yeah. document underlined a family story. Yeah. Not too often that we hear black folk in that era uh, talking French in front of their black kids to make sure that they couldn't <laughs> understand what they were saying. Uh, it's a delightful story, uh, and I'm glad you shared it. Let, let me move to this other issue that I, that, you, that you raised, um, that you discovered in your research about, about the lynchings. I said a moment ago, um, we all know 
uh, our history with regard to lynchings and that these lynchings were happening literally every day, multiple times a day uh, in this country. So no, nothing new there. But it, it seems to me that it is something altogether different when you do the research and get more detail about a family member who was, in fact, lynched. And then you find the death certificate and it says heart failure. Uh, technically, we all die of heart failure. No matter what you have, you die when your heart stops beating. So I guess technically it is true, but it is a lie, obviously. Um, he was lynched. But just tell me more uh, emotionally uh, how you process learning and, and getting more detail about a lynching in your own family. Not not that far back, frankly. Not that far back, exactly. And I should stress that it's not, it wasn't a new story to me. I had grown up listening to this story and listening to other African-American families, as you point out, share these kinds of stories. What was new for me was trying to document it. And, and I guess in a way, distressing to see how difficult that can be. Um, you're probably aware of the work they've done to put together the Museum of Lynching, the Memorial of Lynching. And that involved many, many researchers trying to pin down details. And then there's a new book just last year, Margaret Burnham's Hand Now Known, uh, which also is is an attempt. She's a university professor. She has grad students to help her do the research. And she was able to document many, until then, undocumented lynchings. But she wasn't able to, to pin down everything. You know, she she opens the book with one that she wasn't able to pin down, and that was very interesting to me because I'm working on pinning down a lynching, and I wasn't able to pin down it, pin it down. Mm-hmm. The um, as she says, the, the lynching she opens her book with, there was you know reporters at the time must have decided it wasn't worth reporting in the in the white newspapers, and maybe nobody went to the police, or certainly nobody opened the case. And, I kind of followed her lead into the NAACP archives where you, where you can see uh, attempts to document uh, the NAACP includes newspaper articles about lynching, but it also, you can, looking through the, the archives, you can hear in a way, I feel like I could hear it, but it was letters and, and uh, memos among NAACP officials just expressing this, the, the, uh, the difficulties, the fear of witnesses, and the uh, and the difficulties of even in in real time documenting these murders and these atrocities. And of course, I'm coming back many years after the fact, trying to document and uh, and running into the same problems. One of the things I did was go to Commerce, my father's hometown in Georgia, and uh, sit down at the at the microfiche machine the reader in the library and just start going through. The newspaper from that time, you know, uh, spent all day. I went on a day when the library opened early and closed late. So I was there uh, um, almost 12 hours, a little bit of time for lunch. Yeah. Um, a couple, couple questions here. Uh, one, is there, um, even though you knew some of this stuff, is there, I'm trying to find the right word, you tell me because I wasn't there, obviously. Is there an anxiousness? Is there an anxiety? Is there an anticipation? When, when you're spending that much time um, researching your family history for this story for Reuters, what, what's the, what, you tell me, what, what, what's the feeling? What, what's the emotion? It's, it's interesting you should ask because there's, there's two things. There's one, as a reporter, I want to find the documents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and when I'm not, there's an, an anxiety. But also, 
you know, the reading I had done uh, in in Burnham's book and in the NAAC archives, it's it's agonizing to read details of these deaths and these attacks. And so, you know, do I want to read those kind of details about relatives? I don't know because I didn't get a chance. I don't know how I would have reacted if I'd had the chance to see it in black and white that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, so there, there's a lot of things going on. Yep. When you when you learn more about um, your own family history, um, what impact does that have on the life that you're living uh, today? I'm, I'm just curious as to how it impacts you when you when you learn what you discovered in your research process. You know, I we were talking earlier about the eavesdropping, and when I my father now lives in San Diego, and I flew to San Diego to sit down and, and interview him as a reporter does. It's very difficult to interview a family member about things that that family member knows you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to get them to repeat stories, but mm-hmm. you know he was willing to sit down, and uh, I made uh, you know I made sure that my child came with me, uh, become part of that chain of eavesdropping, I suppose. Mm-hmm. My child's name is Tandi, and Tandi. Um, helped me by recording on my iPhone that conversation, listening and recording, but at one point intervening to say, Mom, I I had told my dad that I had grown up hearing these things, but we never had a one-on-one conversation about it in that way. And Tanya says, but Mom, you've never had that kind of conversation with me. You know, she's kind of calling me on it. The um, And I have to think about why why I wanted to why I wanted it to be oblique in a way because they are hard conversations I think almost easier to overhear but mm-hmm. uh, Tanti said knowing them can help us prepare to to hear about hard history later mm-hmm. when when we get to school if if we've had if we've uh, if we know these stories, they're not going to be so shocking or so surprising. We're going to be able to talk about them. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, I wonder, Donna, if you felt a uh, to your point now. I wonder if you felt a an added pressure, uh, not just one because you were being called out by your by your child um, for not sharing with you stories that you eavesdropped on eavesdropped on when you were when you were uh, a youngster. Um, that's enough pressure in and of itself to get caught out by your baby. But on top of that, uh, when your child suggests to you that hearing these stories now makes it easier when they get to a certain point in school uh, and learn of these things, well, you and I both know they don't learn of these things in school. That's what this whole this whole fight about uh, that we're having right now about book bans and, and teaching the truth. They're not going to learn this stuff in schools. I wonder if you felt an additional pressure, not just being uh, called out about it, but the fact that you know that if you don't share these stories uh, broadly, uh, say nothing of your own personal family history, uh, your child will never learn of this stuff. Yes, you you are right. The, uh, the debate over history and over what might um, upset someone to hear, it's, it's new, I guess, but it's also in a long line of, of uh, sugarcoating slavery and lying about slavery in our textbooks and our in our media, and uh, I think part of the reason it's become so contentious now is that that is ending. That there, we I think we have a a an archive of the truth that is 
that is becoming being spread and becoming known. I talked earlier about Margaret Burnham's book. I talked about the lynching museum. Um, all of these antebellum homes, you know, these gracious homes that that were built by slaves. At one time, people would go and have weddings there. But now, more and more, you can go to these homes and learn about the lives of the African Americans who who toiled there. So it's harder and harder to lie. And I think that's why it's become so contentious. Yeah. Um, there's uh, the backstory, at least some of it, uh, as much as I can get to, uh, about uh, Donna's family uh, and what she learned in, in researching her own personal narrative. Uh, when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, I want to get to the other part uh, of uh, this story, uh, and that is what she uh, did bringing to the attention of the nation uh, the uh, political elite presidents, Supreme Court justices, governors, legislators, and others who have descended from ancestors who were, in fact, enslavers. That story, again, all over social media. She co-authored that piece. We'll talk about that part, as we say, that part, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 158. Heard any other talk radio lately that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tabby Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Donna Bryson, who uh, is at Reuters, and she wrote a powerful piece for Reuters called All We Are Is Memory. Uh, the other piece that she was a part of, I'm going to get to here in just a second. Let me close with one final question about that uh, personal story that you wrote, All We Are Is Memory. I think I get it, having read the piece, but why why, why that title, Donna? It is something that uh, Tandi said to me as she as she as a uh, we were talking about the meaning of the story, the, and it resonates with some of the um, other people I spoke to for the story, including a professor in South Africa who um, has talked with students who come to him. He's, he's an African-American professor. He's, he was um, head of a university that was, had white and black students right after apartheid ended, and he taught a course on South Africa's, you know, hard history, and he would often find students, particularly white students, who found this agonizing, wanted to, as they would say, put the past behind them. And he would tell them, you know, we've tried that, and it doesn't work. It just keeps coming up. It keeps coming up because all we are is memory. Mm-hmm. No, it's a powerful phrase, uh, and it jumps out at, uh, jumps out at you, when you when you see it in, in, in print. That said, let me let me move now to the other story that I, that I was uh, anxious to get to. And this is the story that you um, co-wrote. Uh, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Donna Bryson is our guest. Um, she works at Reuters. Uh, and beyond this piece that she wrote about her own personal uh, family history uh, called All We Are Is Memory, she was part of the team that wrote this story that shows that many of America's political elite, including presidents, Supreme Court justices, governors, and legislators, descend from ancestors who were enslavers. And I I think I want to start with this, Donna. What was fascinating for me about that story, and many people have seen it, and again, as I said earlier, the graph, the the, the photographs uh, that accompany the story of these elite and drawing lines to the enslavers in their families. Um, It was was arresting. It was was hard to sort of turn away. When you see it, you you recognize all these faces, And you start reading to see, okay, whose family had enslavers in it, and, and you, you, want, you want to know the backstory. So the, the photos made it undeniable when you see uh, who these persons are uh, in, 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 uh, in our body politic today, knowing that they descend from enslavers. So it's, hard, again, hard to turn away. 
the the part that got me though was that it was so fascinating even for me to want to read and dig into even though I couldn't have been surprised. I mean, this is America. So I, I couldn't have been surprised that many of these persons uh, would have been descendants of families who enslaved, and yet it was impossible not to want to read it, not to want to dig into it. What do you make of that that irony? I think it's what we did was make it personal, which makes it real in a way that uh, history is not always for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say it's hard to turn away, and when it's your family, it's hard to turn away, yeah? Mm-hmm. And the, uh, but and it also, I think it brings, brings to clarity how close this era was. One of the historians we spoke to for this story says, not, not, not simply that it was just a few generations away, but that it was a few conversations away which really resonated with me because I think of, you know, journalism as being about informing conversations, sparking conversations. And uh, it really just felt, I felt that. It felt real after going through this exercise for us. And I'm interested to hear that as a reader, it also made it feel real to you. I'm going to put you on the spot and have you pull out a few people. Um, um, There are many that were featured uh, in the story, uh, and I'm going to ask you to pull out a few of them and just kind of, uh, give the audience a, a, a taste of what you all laid out uh, in the piece. Uh, again, there are many people who are who are featured here, um, but it was uh, again just uh, sort of arresting to see the photos of these people and to learn more about their personal backstories. So let's 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 walk through a few. I'll let you choose who you want to choose, but a few of the persons uh, who who made the list, uh, including as I said, presidents and Supreme Court justices, governors, legislators, all well-known Americans who are the descendants of, uh, of, of enslavers. Um, so, uh, Donna, uh, pick out a few and let's, let's walk through them. Well, the, the biggest pool we were looking at were the members of the last sitting Congress, not the current sitting Congress, because it has turned out to take a lot of time. We mm-hmm. weren't able to finish before the last election. So 100 members of that last sitting Congress, and that's Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, Democrats such as Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Duckworth, uh, every living president, except um, Donald Trump, whose ancestors came from abroad after the, after the period of slavery, uh, 11 governors in 2022, including uh, uh, Ace Hutchinson from Arkansas and Doug Burgum from North Dakota, and two of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices, Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, the fascinating thing that many people were, were commenting on is that Donald Trump, as you mentioned, uh, is not um, in a family uh, where he descends from enslavers, um, but, Barack, but Barack Obama is. <laughs> so what, from, his, from his mother's side. From his mother's side, yeah. So what, what kind of response did you get to that reality, that Donald Trump is not and Barack Obama is? I think it underlines that this doesn't say anything. We're not putting personal responsibility on anyone, but we are saying that uh, that there is a connection between the past and the present. And, and the question is, what do people make of it? Uh, very few of the, the people we identified wanted to talk to us about it, but among those that did was um, Julia Brownlee. She's a Democrat from California, but she's from Virginia. And when I spoke to her, uh, she said she did not know this about her, her um, ancestors, but she was not surprised, which I think might be true for lots of people. People don't, they don't want to know, so they don't dig into it too much. 
but she grew up in Virginia. As she says, when her small town desegregated, her parents took her out of the public schools and sent her to one of those, you know, segregationist um, schools. When she got to college, got to a more integrated atmosphere, and she realized that she had been miseducated by by being taken out of the public schools and taken away from, uh, I guess, a a confrontation with America as a as a multicultural society. And uh, she talks about wanting to talk about her own evolution. And knowing this about her ancestors helps her talk about it. Mm. I'm not surprised um, that uh, a, a good uh, a majority of these folk <laughs> did not want to talk to you. I, I wouldn't want to talk to you either if I were one of these uh, good white folk and you you sort of outed me and exposed me uh, for being a descendant of a family with enslavers in it. Again, I wouldn't want to talk to you either. Um, which, which leads me to ask, uh, why do a story like this? I mean, for those who read this story as sort of outing these people and embarrassing these people, uh, how would you, how would Reuters respond to that? Right. At the beginning when we were talking about this story, I said this is not a gotcha game, is it? Because I didn't want to play a gotcha game. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, I, and I firmly believe it's not. It's a, an exercise in education, an exercise in reminding Americans that the past is not that past. And uh, in looking at notables, notables who are making policy that in a lot of ways is touched by the past. You know, I don't know how often we hear about the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just heard about it a lot in the affirmative action decisions. And that's, that's the amendment that ended slavery, and it still shapes you know the uh, who is an American and what rights do Americans have? It's um, from a period that a lot of people refer to as the second founding, and we pay a lot of attention to the first founding. Somehow easier to talk about uh, throwing off the shackles of British rule, but we can also learn from the second founding when African Americans were were able to throw off the shackles of uh, of racist chattel slavery in this country. As I said, the story was sent to me countless times by people all across the country who wanted to make sure that I saw it. Uh, uh, indeed, I did and did and did and did <laughs> repeatedly. Uh, when we come forward, Donna Bryson, I'm curious as to the kind of response that Reuters got, the kind of response that she and the and the, the team of writers and editors, uh, what they, what what they hear uh, when they push this story out, uh, letting us know that these presidents and Supreme Court justices and governors and others uh, are descendants of ancestors uh, who enslaved people. What did they hear? I want to hear about that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. Donna Bryson, you mentioned earlier that many of the persons uh, whose genealogies uh, you all dug into at Reuters, uh, these notable Americans whose, uh, again, genealogies you you uh, unearthed, uh, did not want to talk to you for the story. No surprise there. Uh, but I'm curious as to what kind of response you uh, and the writers and editors and Reuters heard from everyday people or when this story uh, was released? Uh, some of the response echoes a little bit what you were just saying, that uh, that we were seen as outing these notable people. Um, I disagree with that, <laughs> but I, we definitely heard it. We also heard from people who um, who understood that what we did tells us more about America. Mm-hmm. And there's, news, there's news in that. There's news in the history. Uh, one of the one of the 
people I spoke to after the story was published was more in response to a uh, a timeline on reparations that that I had prepared. And my timeline begins with a woman named Belinda Sutton, who um, managed to successfully sue for a pension after she had been enslaved in in Massachusetts in the 1700s. Um, I spoke to a woman named Kira Singleton, who who runs the the Royal House and Slave Quarters, a museum in 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 Massachusetts, and who points out that you know Belinda won a court but had to keep going back to court to to get what she what the court had said she was owed and and you know these stories of persistence and um i guess the arc of history is sometimes quite slow maybe doesn't even always lead to justice but uh, to have these kinds of stories highlighted i think is important to a lot of readers mm. um this is not a question that you can uh, I want to frame this the right way <laughs> it it's it's I, I I I admit it's not a question specifically for you. Uh, it's a question for those persons who are featured in this story that you helped to write. But I am curious as to your take on the question, and that is the following. Whether or not you think, uh, we think, that these histories, these hard histories, as you put it earlier, uh, about these persons uh, featured in your story ought to inform ought to inform the way they govern, the way they govern, the way they show up in the world? I don't know whether it ought to, but I think it does. You think it does? I do think, I mean, one of the things we also did for this project was a survey, and we, we found that people who knew that they had slave-owning ancestors were, for example, more likely to support reparations. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that ought to be the way, but it certainly seems to be to have some impact on people's thinking about themselves and their country and uh, and the future. Yeah. You know, know, knowing the past um, informs how we think about the future. Yeah, I, I asked that question because, uh, and I, I, <laughs> I asked because uh, it does not seem to me that Amy Coney Barrett, for example, uh, is governed <laughs> uh, by knowing that she has enslavers in her past. It, is, it has done nothing uh, to cause her to, to retrench on the kinds of votes that she's casting as a Supreme Court justice. And so I hear your point. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the word ought is the wrong word. Uh, I'm, ha- I'm happy to hear the data that suggests that persons who find out that they are uh, descendants of families that had enslavers in it uh, are more likely to support reparations. That's a good thing, uh, but it doesn't seem to work for Supreme Court justices or certain elected officials like Mitch McConnell, but I digress on that point. Our remaining moments with Don and Bryson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Quiet part out loud. KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. So, Don, I'm just got about three minutes left, uh, three and a half minutes left in this conversation. We've talked about two major stories that you were connected to. One, of course, about your own personal journey uh, called uh, All We Are is Memory. The other, of course, this story about these um, uh, notable Americans who uh, come from families uh, that uh, had enslavers. Um, I want to take them one at a time just to wrap our conversation. For you personally, um, what was what was the takeaway uh, from your story, uh, All We Are is Memory? I go back to Tandi, who uh, underlined the importance of um, being aware of your surroundings, I suppose, and that includes your historical surroundings. Uh, as, as a parent, I feel like I can be more forthright, and, and I understand the importance of that now. 
for the larger story. I'm, uh, I'm glad we had this opportunity to to educate in an important uh, important tenet of journalism, and would point out to listeners that uh, the project includes some some guides to how you might go about doing your own historical ancestral research. So have a look on on Reuters.com, R-E-U-T-E-R-S.com, and and, uh, look up the materials. Given that you uh, have had the experience now of of doing what you just suggested, others can find information about how to do, is it something something that you uh, recommend to other, particularly African Americans, to do? Absolutely. I I came away from this whole project uh, understanding America better, understanding my family better, and, and that I think can lead to understanding yourself better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as a, I'm asking you now, just as a, as a writer, as a reporter, um, given the connection that this story about, uh, again, the genealogy of these uh, uh, prominent Americans, uh, given the impact of that story, I, I'm curious as to, again, as a reporter, how you see the conversation the country is or is not having, depending on your perspective, around the issue of reparations. This station... Um, KBLA is heard across the country. We're flagshipped in, in L.A., as you may know. And so here in California, we are sort of leading the nation uh, on this reparations uh, dialogue. And we will see what the California legislature ultimately does now that it's in their hands to decide uh, how and, and whether and if <laughs> we define reparations in a particular way. But but what's, what's your sense, given the story that you, again, were connected to, what's your sense of how the country is having or not having the reparations conversation writ large? It's having it more and more, and it's interesting to me. Uh, several people I interviewed for the story about my family. I, we talked about the uh, South African Truth and Reconciliation sure. Commission, which I, I covered as a reporter. And I mm-hmm. covered the the opening uh, sessions, and that was at at heart a truth telling, a national truth telling, in a way, trying to get everyone on the same page. Mm-hmm. And I see the reparations conversation as being very similar. I think the, the, when we look at what, what's been proposed in D.C., it is simply let's have a study, let's have a conversation. And it's a start. I don't know where it will lead, but it seems like an important start. Yeah, the one irony um, of, of, of the, uh, the, the TRC that you just raised, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, is you know because you covered it, uh, as did I, that people were given the chance to come forward and to confess uh, and once it's on the record, um, it's there. Uh, and that is your punishment, essentially. You have to come forward and tell the truth in front of this commission. And um, essentially, um, you're allowed to go on with your life, but you got to come forward uh, in this moment and tell the truth. Um, it, with regard to your story, you got all these folk who, who didn't want to talk to Reuters, didn't want to address the truth. I can't imagine America having anything like a TRC, at least in that regard, where we give opportunities uh, for Americans to come forward and tell the truth, and they actually take those opportunities. Can you imagine that? I couldn't. I can't. I think there are probably South Africans who couldn't imagine that the TRC would happen. Yeah. So, and I, I think that an acknowledgement is, is more is deeper than we realize. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, I, I take your point. Uh, Donna Bryson is her name. She's uh, with Reuters. Uh, again, her story of uh, the research into her own family is called All We Are Is Memory. And, of course, um, I ain't got to tell you about the other story. You've seen it everywhere uh, about these uh, lawmakers and beyond who are uh, descendants of uh, families uh, that had enslavers in it. Uh, we'll leave it there. Donna Bryson, thanks for your work and witness. Good to have you on. All the best to you. Thank you so much. In our third hour, in our final hour today, Marianne Williamson, Democratic presidential candidate, joins us live in studio at KBLA Talk 15.